Today's scripture comes from Ruth chapter 2, verses 18 through 23. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked, and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So I've been following along and studying, praying, reflecting on the book of Ruth. I couldn't help but be reminded of the life story of someone very dear to me. And from a very early age was separated from her parents to live with a close, close relative as her mother left to a foreign country seeking better pastures. And dad was just not interested. But because of the wickedness of the human heart, and in her case on multiple levels, and because everyone was doing as they thought was right, everyone was doing what they wanted, everyone did as they saw fit in their own lives. This family member exposed this young girl to things no child should be exposed to. Regardless of culture, regardless of need, no such reasonable justification for doing something such as this. Something that's just plain wrong and simple. But God stirred up, God noticed, and he stirred up in the heart of another family member to remove her and her siblings from this wicked environment. Again, God comes through. He notices and she's reunited with mother and siblings, but just now taken to a foreign land with a different culture, a different language. And not too long after that, not too long after that again, because everyone did as they pleased. Everyone did as they saw fit in their own eyes. Mother lived a life apart from God's purposes. Again, she separated from siblings constantly exposed to a lifestyle which her parent, her parents, in this case, single parent, engaged in multiple relationships, drugs, constantly moving from schools, from homes. And she begins to ask herself, does God, does God notice what's going on in my life? Is, is, does God notice? Does God see what's going on, what's happening to me? But things don't improve. The mother eventually is incarcerated, required to leave the country to which she brought her family to. But God shows up. He notices. In a time of turmoil, when other families begin to turn their back and judge her for acting out, 
Because who wouldn't? Being overwhelmed by everything at such an early age, unable to handle what's going on. God providentially leads her to a boy who's farther from God than she is, but, but, whose family, despite their dealing with their own turmoil and their own struggles and not having their theology in place, decide to align their life's purposes with God's and not just give her the phone directory to Department of Children and Families. If you're from Miami, you know what I'm talking about. But incarnate, make the problem theirs and adopt her. Bring her into their home, their lives, and ultimately expose her to the gospel of the one who redeems broken lives. If you're like me, I feel sometimes that God is not noticing whether it's because of my circumstances are not the way I think that they should be, I think God is not noticing me. Or when I become so comfortable that the, pay, the price, the sacrifice that was paid in my behalf in order for God to actually take notice of me begins to lose significance. And I begin to depend on my own strength and resources than on God's provision for me which is his grace for the unnoticeable in and through the work of Jesus. And so, church, where we're going this morning, I was looking forward to say that. Every time I hear Ryan say that, I, I, I love it because I just sit up front and say, like, okay, God, speak to me. Your servant hears. And so every time I go and I teach and I preach somewhere, that's what I say now. Church, this is where we're going. This is the big idea. Thanks, Ryan. God takes notice of those who recognize there's nothing worthy to be noticed within themselves. Again, God takes notice of those who recognize there's nothing worthy to be noticed within themselves. But what does it mean, right? What does it mean to recognize that there's nothing to be noticed within myself? So we get a glimpse of this concept from Naomi's response and blessing Towards whomever has allowed Ruth to glean and eat in verses 18 and 19. You look at your scriptures, it says, And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her, food, gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Apparently she startled, she startled because the amount of amount that she's allowed to glean, which is an ipha, which apparently is about 22 liters in quantity. In other words, provision for Naomi and Ruth, but provision for days. But the narrator has already introduced this minor theme. If you were here with us last week from verses 10 and verses 13 from this same chapter. In Ruth's expression of gratitude, we see it in verse 10. Ruth's express of gratitude for this provision, she says towards Boaz in verse 10. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, to Boaz, why? Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner. Verse 13, 
For you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. So it's this recognition that because of God's nature, God's attributes, God's character, there's nothing that would make me noticeable to God in and of myself. There's nothing that would make me noticeable to God in and of myself. For example, we can see this very quickly in Luke, the narrative there in Luke, Luke chapter 7, verses 6 through 9. Quickly, um, verse 8, Jesus' interaction with the centurion. For he says, for I, am a man, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant do this, and he does, but, but, but I'm not worthy of you to come into my house. He says, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, turned to the crowd, and, and that followed him and said, I tell you not, even in Israel I have found such faith. Or the woman later on in this same chapter, verse 47, verse 50, the woman, if you're familiar with that text, where she, Jesus is invited by the Pharisee, and this woman cries and wipes Jesus' feet with her tears, and with her hair, and she pours ointment on him in, a, in an act of worship. And Jesus responds to Simon, the Pharisee, says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little, and he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. But, but what faith? What? It's, it's not that he's saying, Simon, she sinned more than you and, and you've sinned less. So she has, no, it's Simon, she recognizes that there, we are not worthy. We're all far short of the glory of God. Regardless of her lifestyle, we're both on the same boat. We all fall short. There's nothing worthy within ourselves to make ourselves noticeable to God. In both of these examples, we see the concept, and it's this recognition, this concept of a recognition that there is nothing that I can do to make myself acceptable to God. I love this, the way that Dr. Michael Williams, author commenting on this passage, says, both Naomi and Ruth were just as powerless to effect their own redemption as we are powerless to effect our own. Brothers and sisters, because no matter how hard we try or how religious we become, we cannot make ourselves noticeable or acceptable to a perfect, just, and holy God. But it's in his love and his mercy that he has provided the perfect substitute. God the Father sending God the Son who's truly human in that he experiences pain, grief, temptation, but never sinning fully divine, and that's why he can bear the penalty, the weight of God's wrath on the cross, God putting our sin on Jesus, punishing him in our place, him dying, being buried, and raised on the third day, proving that everything that makes us unnoticeable to God, sin, death, it's the only way, the only provision from God that can make us noticeable. And it's only through his righteousness accredited to us through repentance and faith. Complete trust in what he did for us that make us noticeable to God. Not only has he made us notable, so he's provided 
the means necessary so that we could be noticed by God in and through the work of his son. And isn't that amazing to know that we don't have to prove anything to anyone. I don't have to seek the approval, the attention. I don't have to prove to be noticed by anyone in any sphere of my life. I think about even myself believing the lies that I have to perform even this morning, forgetting that, that my validation lies within the work that Jesus has done in our place. So I think about you and your places of influence, your, your spheres of where you work, live, and play. Yeah, it is good to seek success, but not in the effort of seeking validation from something that will not give you ultimate validation, which has already been provided to us in the finishing work of Jesus for us. But how do we see this? Right, because they, Ruth, Boaz, Naomi, these characters in this story, they don't see a full picture. They see this unfolding grace reflecting, pointing forward. But we, we've seen a greater picture. We, we've seen the fullness, the, the, the fulfillment of, those, of that grace ultimately in Jesus. But how do we see this? Which move, takes us to our first point. God pours out his covenant love on those that are undeserving of his love. How do we see this? Verse 19 and 20. It says, And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. God displays his selfless, redemptive kindness through Boaz's provision of food for Ruth and Naomi and, 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 for, and for Naomi and providentially orchestrates all the events for Ruth to glean in the field of one who could possibly be a redeemer for them, for Naomi. Despite the fact that she is bitter, as we have seen in chapter 1, she is bitter, she considers herself dead and empty, one who doesn't recognize God's kindness for her, even through Ruth's companionship, basically leaving her life, her identity, her culture, her land, in Moab to go and leave and cling to Naomi. We also see how, go, how God notices, this, notices Boaz. Look at in verse 12 of chapter 2, Boaz pronounces blessing upon Ruth's life. Verse 12 says, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. God displays his steadfast love and kindness through Naomi's blessings towards Orpah and Ruth. She's willing to return to Bethlehem alone and seeks instead the welfare of Ruth and Orpah when she says to them, to her both daughters-in-law, go, 
Return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her, of her husband. So how has he demonstrated to us that he does take notice of us? Of, of us? He takes notice of them by blessing Ruth, by demonstrating through Boaz, the provision that he provides through Naomi, through Ruth, for Naomi. God, Ruth's, I'm sorry, Naomi's blessing towards Boaz. And, event, and ultimately, Naomi blessing Ruth and Ruth in, resp in response to that love demonstrated to her leaves and clings to Naomi. And sometimes, brothers and sisters, church, right now, I could think of us, I think of myself when sometimes my situations, my circumstances, even coming here almost a year and a half already, moments where we, we have looked back and, and we ask ourselves, is, does God see, is God noticing us? Is God blessing us? And we fail because of our circumstances to see God's kindness, God's steadfast love shown to us, not only in the person and work of Jesus Christ, making us noticeable to him, providing the means, but even through the lives of other people coming alongside of us, providing comfort, providing a friendship, bringing us into their families. And I think of some of us right now that are going through situations where we probably cannot see God's steadfast kindness, love, redemptive love in and through other peoples in our lives right now because our situations are probably too difficult that our vision is blurred and we can't see that because sometimes we tend to see blessings only in and through material possessions. But this narrative shows us that blessings come even through peace of heart. And sometimes God may use us in a way for his eternal purposes that might even cause us to lose our life on this side of eternity. And that is God's blessing. That is God's love, steadfast love and kindness towards you and towards me. But what should be our response then? What, what, how should we respond? What is the reason, reasonable response that we should have and that Naomi and Ruth and Boaz demonstrate to us and should be ours? If God has provided the means, there's nothing within ourselves to make ourselves noticeable to God. God provides the means. He makes the problem himself. He incarnates in, into the problem, comes. Then what should be our response? God is pleased to pour out his blessings on those who radically align their lives' purposes with his. And how, how do we do that? How do we align our life's purposes with God's? Through obedience. We align our life's purposes with God through obedience. But not only just obedience, but if we keep the context, the story in which this 
narrative takes place. In history, right, we've heard this in chapter 1, verse 1, in the time of the judges. A time where everyone did as they saw fit. So it's obedience in a time where not everyone wants to obey. Everyone wants to do what seems fit in their own eyes. And it's significant that we keep that historical context of this narrative in the forefront so that we can see what I'm saying. Verse 21, you shall keep close by my young man until they have finished all my harvest. Because the narrator is repeating this idea that not only Boaz, but Naomi knew that Ruth might not be allowed to glean in the fields. In fact, she might even be assaulted. We, we heard this. But why, why is she saying that? Because if it is a time in the people of the history of God where everyone seems to do as they seems to do as they seem fit, as they see fit, where the people of God are living apart from the purposes of God, we see a contrast. We see Boaz is doing, is being obedient in a time when not everyone else wants to be obedient to God's law. So it's aligning our life's purposes with God's purposes in a radical way. Radically, Boaz is obedient to the Mosaic law, even when everyone did as they saw fit in their own eyes. What do we know about the Mosaic law? Well, Leviticus chapter 23 verse 22 says, And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord, your God. So radical obedience by Boaz in a time where everyone did as they saw fit. Tell you a story. Uh, my nephew is my, very close to me. We've, we've, I've walked with him. He's now turning 18. And not too long ago, he started a relationship. He started a relationship with this young girl who is not um, hostile to the faith, but he did something that, that it helps us understand this, uh, where people were just laughing at him and mocking him because everyone was saying, who does that? Because in his effort to be, remain pure and remain faithful to God, he took this girl out with their family and his family, his grandparents, his father, and he just asked her to be his girlfriend. But in a way that he was valuing and respecting her purity and his purity in a way that what people were mocking him with is who does that? Who does that anymore? Who asks their parents to go out with a girl? Would you just do that? And he did that. He went and he took them out to dinner and he asked her for permission to a relationship. But as I speak to him, what the, his end goal was not was not to, to seek no, to be noticed or, or to seek anything in response to that, but what he says is, I just wanted to show her that I value her for who she is. I, I want her to see that my intentions are good, but in a time that everyone doesn't do the same thing. Everyone does similar things. So I know that some of us are asking, well, how, do, how does that fit for me? How do I align my life's purposes with God's in radical obedience in a time where 
everyone does as they seem fit. I think about us that deal in places and environments and work environments that are continually hostile to the Christian faith and the way that you practice and run your business in situations where people say, in order to get ahead, you, sometimes you have to do things that not everyone else does. You have to do things to get around. You have to do things to succeed. Or even in your relationships, whether it be with your, in marriage or friendships, everyone else is doing it. Why can I do it? But brothers and sisters, if we have been united to Christ, if he has provided the means to make us noticeable to him, he's also provided us with the power and the motivation and enable us. To, even in, in moments like these where people might say, who does that? Why do you live that way? Why do you make those decisions? Why do you make those life decisions, family decisions that way? Ultimately, in this, in my nephew's relationship, it led to that family visiting the church where we used to visit. Because they were just curious. Why, how could you, why would you do things like that when everyone else your age is not doing those things? It brought notice, not to him, but ultimately to Jesus. But not only radical obedience in a time where everyone else does differently, but obedience to the ultimate purposes of God. So we have already seen this, right? We, we, this has been discussed in previous week, weeks. I think it was in, verse, in week one that Ryan touched on this concept, this theological concept of providence and sovereignty. So how do we see this here? How do we see aligning our purposes with God's ultimate purpose? God is sovereign in and through Boaz's obedience by motivating and enabling it as we've seen. How, why do I say this? What motivates, Niel, what motivates um, Ruth's actions? She responds to Naomi's love. Naomi blesses her with God's kindness, with that has said selfless love by not thinking about herself, but thinking more about your future. I'm dead. My life is about over. You go. You go. You and Orpah go and live your lives. I can't give you an heir. I can't give you a husband. I basically can't give you nothing. She responds, her motivation and enablement is out of response to God. The, the, the love that God has shown to her. Boaz, as we just saw in verse 22 of Leviticus, it says, I am the Lord your God. Because I am the Lord your God because of what I've done, because what I've done for your forefathers, re releasing you, liberating you from slavery in Egypt, now I obey this command to leave and let the sojourner glean and the poor. So how do, we, how do we see this? Why do we know that? In verse, in verse 2, verse 11 and 12, Boaz answered, um, Boaz responds to, to Ruth, says, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before me. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. 
God orchestrated all the events for Ruth to glean specifically in Boaz's field without any prior knowledge of her, of her knowing who he was. But Boaz was radically obedient. Providence and sovereignty to God's will reserved for the poor and the, sojour, and the sojourner, as we see in, in Leviticus 23. But ultimately obedient to the law of redemption that not only would liberate Naomi from poverty, but also Ruth by marrying her, which was going over and beyond what was required by the law and provide Naomi with a grandson that would become the grandfather of David, David the ancestor of Jesus. And so God's providential provision of a redeemer for Naomi will in time also become his providential provision of a redeemer for all of those whom God adopts into his own Family. So, again, how do, we, how do we see God's providence, God's sovereignty, and us, and Ruth, and Boaz, Naomi, radically aligning their life's purposes to God's purposes through obedience? God's sovereignty, provision, but obedience as a prerequisite. Boaz is obedient to the law. And Naomi and Ruth is obedient and faithful to the love displayed to her by Naomi. So our obedience is required. Our obedience is a prerequisite for God to accomplish his purposes. And we see this, we see this clearly. And in this same introduction that I was mentioning to you, that same family that adopts this young girl into their family, 10 years prior to that, another family had embraced that family. When that family came into this country with a new, where there's a new language, a new culture, no family, that another family embraced that family, loved them, gave their lives for them, brought them into their families, and ultimately exposed them to the gospel to Jesus, and this family eventually, that kid that meets that girl eventually, that family disciples, loves on this boy, helps this boy grow, and eventually this boy feels the call to serve in the ministry the ultimate purpose of God. And what, what I say, what I mean by the ultimate purpose of God if you recall Jesus in the Gospels when he sees Jesus praying and he sees how powerful, they see how powerful Jesus' prayer is. And they ask, Master, teach us how to pray. And Jesus responds and he says, when you pray, pray in this way that God's name would be glorified, that his name would be hallowed and that his kingdom would come and that his will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And ultimately, we ask ourselves, what is God's purpose for the world? I love how this author puts it. God's purpose for the world is that his kingdom would come in such a way that his name would be glorified and that his will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. When we align our life's purposes through obedience with God's purposes, like Boaz and Ruth, God's purpose, ultimate purpose, that the kingdom of God would eventually come, be inaugurated in the person of Jesus, and that it is coming, and that ultimately it will come 
in its fulfillment. And that we as a church, New City as a church, as we've spoken about before, would be a kingdom outpost, outpost in this city, in the midst of darkness where people will see a glimpse of the kingdom, a glimpse of God's will being done here on earth in and through the city of Lawrenceville. So my question and what God is asking us in this morning, do we want to align our life's purposes with God's ultimate purpose for the city of Lawrenceville? When we believe that the church, which is the primary means through which God brings his kingdom and uses so that his will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven, is he asking us, are we willing to align ourselves with God's ultimate purpose through new city? And not only new city, but the churches, the kingdom outposts that are already in this city. Even in this time in, of the church where we're talking about the city initiative and we're asking, we're thinking, we're reflecting, am I going to partner with God? Am I going to partner with God? Because he's shown that, that has said that redempting love towards me. He's made me noticeable. He's empowered and enabled me to say, yes, I want to partner with you, God, not ultimately with New City, but with what God is doing in and through New City. And I think about you that you have already made that decision, but I think about those that are debating whether I should. I think about you that work with nonprofit organizations that have taken that challenge and said, you know what, I am going to partner with God to see this city flourish to see the undeserved kids and people and families flourish because God has shown his steadfast, redemptive love to me. Church, in this, with this I end. If you're visiting us probably here for the first time and, and, and this probably seems foreign to you, something very interesting even about the context of the book, of, a book of, of Ruth, because it happens in a time where the people of God are worst off, are, are so far from God, are living a life apart from the purposes of God. And there's something that shows us in the scriptures that it's this, this term that, that we know that it's, they're dead ends. They're dead ends because we see even this, this time in the history of the people of God where they're living apart from God's purposes. But God, in his grace, in his love, keeps showing them, kept showing them, no, it's not this, but this. No, it's not priests. It's not the law. It's not the sacrifices. That doesn't work. No, it's not the judges. No, it's not the kings. No, it's not prophets. No, you need a greater Boaz. No, you need a greater king. You need a greater judge. You need the king of kings. Ultimately, in his grace, showing us that it's Jesus. And if those dead ends have been to me, if they're like that to you, it's just what they show us is the only place where, like Naomi, the only place where we can go from being empty to receiving and feeling full is in Jesus, our Redeemer. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your love, for your kindness. Father, Lord, my desire is that you, um, Lord, ultimately would remind us that you have provided the means by which we can be made noticeable to you. My desire, my prayer, Lord, is that you would, as the Apostle Paul told the church in Ephesus, that we would be strengthened and that we would have 
the power, the knowledge, that we would grow in the knowledge to see the depth, the breadth, the width of your love for us, and that in turn we would love you, be motivated by love for you and love for others that you've created in your image. We pray this. May you grant this in Jesus' name. Amen.